Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. This week, Joseph Smith, Matthew 1, Matthew 24 through 25, Mark 12 through 13, and Luke 21. Now, we probably should say that the reason we have so much content here is that all of these gospel writers are focused on these crucial events in the last week of Jesus' life, and we have all this additional perspective that's super helpful. That's why it's such a long reading list. So for this first episode this week, we're going to focus on Matthew 24 and Joseph Smith Matthew. For the second half episode, for the next episode this week, we'll do Matthew 25. So episode one will focus on what is called the Olivet Discourse. It's also been referred to as Jesus's little apocalypse episode where he's, he's going to give some end-time prophecies to his disciples back then. And you'll notice this is the one chapter out of the New Testament that shows up in the Pearl of Great Price. Matthew 24 becomes Joseph Smith Matthew. Yeah, why is that? We were talking beforehand and you shared some insights that I hadn't even known. Yeah, so over in England when Franklin D. Richards, a member of the Twelve, is putting together this collection of writings and prophecies and works attached to the prophet Joseph Smith and calling it the Pearl of Great Price, the intent was to give those saints over in England just this collection of here are some of the fruits of having a prophet. So when he gives the book of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price, that's Moses chapter 1 through 8, that was Joseph Smith's biggest uh, translation changes from the Old Testament, from Genesis chapters 1 through chapter 6 verse 13. And then he gives the, the chapter with the most significant and the, the highest number of Joseph Smith translation changes from the New Testament, which happens to be Matthew 24. And so these, these two sections in the Pearl of Great Price coming to us out of the Bible are because Joseph made so many significant changes. Just to give you an idea of that, if you look at Matthew 24, it has approximately 1,050 words, and Joseph Smith Matthew has approximately 1,500 words. So you're noticing we're adding 50% more to the Olivet Discourse than what we get in the New Testament, and quite frankly, the Joseph Smith Matthew version is so much clearer to understand because it's going to give us these two events, the destruction of Jerusalem leading up to 70 AD and then the destruction of the certain things in the world in the latter days. And Joseph Smith Matthew makes a very clear breaking point, and we'll show you that, whereas it all kind of gets muddled together a little bit and becomes more confusing when you just read the, the King James Version of Matthew 24. So we're very grateful to have the Joseph Smith translation here in the Pearl of Great Price that we're going to focus in on. Now, before we dive into uh, Joseph Smith Matthew, 
let's pick up one story that shows up in Mark and Luke before, right before we jump into this Olivet Discourse, and it's the story of Jesus in the temple, in the treasury of the temple. If you look at this digital recreation of the temple at the time of, of Christ that once again you can find at uh, virtualscriptures.org, the treasury is part of the court of the women. You have these 13 trumpet-shaped chests around the perimeter of this court under the porticos, and you'll notice the metal trumpet shape makes it so that if you drop coins into it, it's going to amplify that sound. And you've got 13 of these chests, and each one is devoted to a different thing, so you could donate to the, the wood supply for the temple sacrifices, you could donate to the poor, you could donate to help the priestly families continue to run the, the uh, ordinances in their temple, and so you had all these different options. And so we find Jesus in this story in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, says, and Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. Can you imagine how that might have sounded if, you, if some rich guy brings a bag of coins and starts dumping it into one of these metal trumpet-shaped chests? Yeah, it's not a bad thing for them to do this, but sometimes if you're not careful in these settings, it, it would be very easy to fall into this trap of sounding the trumpets before you um, to be seen of men, so to speak, to get the glory of the world. So everybody turns and says, wow, look what a holy, righteous, generous person that is. Look at verse 42, there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites which make a farthing. Two mites, this, this smallest of the small coins, and she throws in two of them, and you can probably, in your mind's eye, imagine this widow coming and not wanting to draw any attention to herself and just quietly plopping these, these two mites into the treasury. And, and this word that is used to talk about describing her poverty is, uh, is tokos, it's one who crouches or cowers or who is bent over, and the, it, the idea is somebody who's just completely bent over in a begging situation, needing things from people, they're completely destitute. Now, it's one thing to be a peasant who doesn't have much, right? There's kings and the wealthy, and then there's the peasants. Below the peasants are the tokos, the people who are absolutely poor, destitute, have nothing. And it's just hard to conceive of just how little she had in comparison to others. Just a very, very touching story. I wonder what she would say if we could have a conversation with that widow today. I wonder if she would say something like, man, let me tell you how hard it was to part ways with those two mites and to sacrifice those. I was so destitute and yet I, I gave those to the Lord and I wish I wouldn't have. Do you think she would say that today? I, I, think, I think sometimes we, we keep mortal blinders on and we don't see this eternal perspective of the God who holds worlds without number in his hand can look at this widow 
sacrificing so little but for her, which was so much, and then rewarding her so openly, perhaps not with wealth and riches in this life, but with things that are much more. She just made an investment in an eternal court on high, in an eternal mansion. I, I love this, this unnamed widow for her example. And those farthings might be worth 10 to 20 minutes of work. So if you and I both work for 10 minutes, we might get a farthing. Now, she probably wasn't aware that day of what she felt like was a very meager offering, 10 or 20 minutes worth of value. We ask ourselves, how is that multiplied that she has taught over 2,000 years faithful Christians wanting to be more like Jesus Christ about humility, more than the 10 or 20 minutes could have ever, ever been multiplied by a single human? Isn't that fascinating that her, her two might sacrifice, her two might offering, was an investment to become an immortalized uh, object lesson and teacher for all of us. 2,000 years later, we are, we are learning from this woman because of that, that little investment that she made, and in, she's inspiring us to become a little bit more consecrated to the Lord in our offerings. I, I love that. Verse 43, Jesus called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. And all they is all-inclusive, all and he's saying that little two-mite investment was worth more than everything else that was thrown into the treasury today. And interestingly, I don't know of any other record in Scripture of anybody else putting money into the treasury besides her that we know about, and so Jesus is actually right. And, and notice, his, notice the, the way he qualifies that statement, verse 44, for all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Brothers and sisters, when you wake up on Sunday and feel poor, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, whatever it may be, and if you devote and consecrate what you do have, as little as it may seem, to your calling, to your family, to your loved ones, and, and it may seem so insignificant, the Lord is able to multiply that offering in ways that, that we can never foresee and never predict even, that, that, that it's even noticed but the angels in heaven are silent notes taking of all this. So I, I love this little story as the precursor into this uh, uh, chapter 24 now in Matthew, if we turn over. And instead of reading it from Matthew 24, we're going to take advantage of our Joseph Smith translation in Joseph Smith Matthew. So again, keep in mind, Usually when we have Joe Smith translations, it's either in the footnote or in the back of your Bible. This is one exception in the New Testament where this is the JST, Joe Smith translation for Matthew 24. So let's pick it up here in, in the last verse of Matthew 23, which is verse 1 of Joseph Smith Matthew. It says, For I say unto you, 
that ye shall not see me henceforth and know that I am he of whom it is written by the prophets, until ye shall say, Blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord, in the clouds of heaven, and all the holy angels with him. Now some of you will recognize that phrase, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. This is a phrase that comes out of Psalm 118, and it was the phrase that is going that was shouted during the triumphal entry by that, that multitude of people who came down into the Kidron Valley. They were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord, the son of David. Remember our connection back to 1 Kings 1 with, with Solomon, the son of David, who is going to take the Davidic throne and rule as a king in Jerusalem. Well, Jesus just told them, you're not going to see me again until ye shall say, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord, which tells us that Psalm 118, that incredible uh, hymn for them, is a messianic psalm, and they thought they were experiencing the coming of the Messiah to fulfill all those uh, Old Testament prophecies that are alluding to his second coming, not his first coming. And so now he's saying, there will be a day when you're going to sing these words again, and it's Psalm 118, verse 26, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Keep in mind, last year in the Old Testament study of Psalms, we covered this, that verse 26, that, that triumphal entry section, starting in verse 25, save now, which if you read it in the Hebrew is Hoshana, it's Hosanna, that's what they're shouting. Um, it is preceded just barely in verse 22 with this phrase, the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. Another way we would say it today is the very rock that the builders looked upon, inspected, and refused is actually going to become the chief cornerstone on which this, this kingdom is going to be built, and we all know who that chief cornerstone is, being Christ. And if you look right after the triumphal entry, the, these messianic verses in Psalm 118, it says, God is the Lord which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords even unto the horns of the altar. The symbolism is hauntingly beautiful here that yes, there is a Messiah who's coming, who's going to save you, but first he needs to be rejected and the sacrifice is going to be bound to the altar and he's going to give his life. So let's contextualize Psalm 118. Look at the first and second verse and the last verse. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Now jumping to verse 29 of Psalm 118. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Everything that Jesus is doing is to secure and to demonstrate that his love endures forever. I think it's worth repeating here that there's a really important book that God brought forth as part of the foundation of the Restoration called 
the Book of Mormon. And the name is a lesson. In ancient Egyptian, uh, the word Mormon comes from two Egyptian words. It means love endures forever. Let me just get that in there. And we see that right here in Psalm 118. So when we talk about the Book of Mormon, it's the book of God's love endures forever. And here we are leading up to that moment, that culminating moment where Jesus secures the eternal foundations of that love through his sacrifice. Really, really powerful stuff. Another thing to remember from our study last year in the Old Testament is that Psalm 113 through 118 are the Hallel or praise hymns, and they were often sung at Passover and at other festival events of the year. And remember in the Last Supper, a few days down the road from where we are in, in Matthew 24 and in Joseph Matthew, Jesus is going to be singing a hymn with his apostles. Makes you wonder if Psalm 118 was in that mix. It very likely was in that mix right before he goes into Gethsemane, followed by the trials and the cross the next morning, on Friday morning. Anyway, the symbolism here is, is beautiful. As you think of this being a chapter of end times, well, this is a chapter of the prophecies of the end of the Savior's life, which, because he stays faithful through all those trials, makes it so that we have something to hope for and to not be afraid with our own end times, collectively or individually. So, uh, verse 1, the, the second half says, then understood his disciples that he should come again on the earth after he was glorified and crowned on the right hand of God. So you're seeing this, that for the first time they're, they're connecting some dots saying, oh, wait a minute, you're going to come again, there's going to be a second coming of our Messiah. So you're you're going to fulfill both sets of prophecies that before they had pretty much overlooked the suffering servant, the, the first coming prophecies in favor of the big, what, what in biblical studies is called the eschatological prophecies, the end times, apocalyptic kinds of things, and they, they're starting to connect those dots for the first time. Now we go into verse 2. Now, when something ends, that means something else is beginning. So we get talking about the end times, sometimes we get fixated on just the conclusion, and sometimes we forget that that conclusion is the foundation or the starting point for a much more glorious future. So, sure, might life get hard and difficult? Yes, but let's focus on where eventually the story goes. As we see in the Book of Mormon, there's this powerful phrase, and it came to pass. So, yes, we are going to go through end times, and then we'll have beginning times. So the end times will come to pass so that we can have a new beginning with God, Jesus, and all the angels of heaven. That's beautiful. Verse 2, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to hear him, saying, Master, show us concerning the buildings of the temple, as thou hast said. They shall be thrown down and left unto you desolate. They're looking at this huge temple mount that has taken 46 years to build. It's had 10,000 workers, according to Josephus, a thousand wagons, a thousand priests. This has been a gargantuan building project, 
and he's saying, yeah, it's all going to be thrown down and not one stone left on another, that they're so confused. Tell us about this. It's the largest religious structure in the Roman Empire. So Herod, King Herod the baby killer, is called Herod the Great, not because he was great, but he was a very great builder. He was a bit of a megalomaniac, and so he just did things in an outsized way. So he, he makes this prophecy in verse 3, Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here upon this temple one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. That's a pretty big prophecy. And those are big stones. Those are huge stones. If, in fact, if you go to Jerusalem today and go to the southwest corner of Temple Mount into what is called the, the Davidson Archaeological Park, you can look at these pictures here of this street going up the western side. These flagstones date back to the time of Jesus. These big stones that you see in the road here, those date back to when the Romans threw them off of the Temple Mount up above, and they're still there today. You can see them and climb on them. And to give you just a bit of clarity, think about in Salt Lake City, we have the Temple Building, and then you have Temple Square, and surrounding Temple Square is a wall. And so many of these rocks and stones that you're looking at are from the wall that surrounded what essentially was Temple Square with the temple inside. And sometimes people get confused about the difference between the Temple Mount, equivalent to Temple Square, and the temple itself. Just like we have in Salt Lake City today, you have the temple building, which is distinct from the wall that surrounds the square itself. Mm -hmm. And they're going to level all the buildings and all the walls on top of the Temple Mount, but they're not going to tear down Temple Mount. Um, verse 4, Jesus left them and went upon the Mount of Olives, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when these things shall be, which thou hast said concerning the destruction of the temple and the Jews, and what is the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, or the destruction of the wicked, which is the end of the world. Now, there is a critical uh, element here in verse 4. They're asking two questions. When shall these things be? The destruction of the temple, the destruction of the Jews in Jerusalem. When is that? And what is the sign of thy coming at the end of the world? So they want two things, and Matthew, uh, Joseph Smith Matthew helps us see that distinction very beautifully. If you want to mark your scriptures, verse 1 through 20 is where he's going to be focusing more on Jerusalem and the Jews and the destruction back then, and then in verse 21 through 55, he answers their second question, which is about his second coming when, when uh, he's going to return to the earth. So we get the signs of the times in those verses. To help make sense of this first section, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the Jews and Jerusalem, and the loss of their, their kingdom there, it might be helpful to see just a little timeline. So in 66 AD, you have Nero, who is the, the Roman emperor, so Nero sends Vespasian to Israel. Why? Because there's been this revolt that's been growing, this they're refusing to pay tribute, they're starting to rise up in rebellion, and you, you have more zealots, and that 
that influence is spreading, and Nero's saying, we can't have this. So Vespasian, you're going to go and quell that, that uh, rebellion. And, and to be clear, there were many Jews who actually, some were actually really pleased to have the Romans there, others just dealt with it, and some were just so radicalized, they're like, there can't be anything Roman or non-Jewish anywhere. And so not only was there a revolt against Rome, but there was actually also an internal civil war going on among the Jews about do we, um, do we fully assimilate to the Romans, do we accommodate, or do we 100% resist, or you can run away. And those are kind of your four options. And the people who wanted to resist to arms created this problem and ended up creating serious destruction. But that's why Vespasian has to come and bring order back to where there had been serious chaos. Then, in 68 AD, Nero is going to die, and Vespasian returns to Rome to take his place as the new, the new leader. And this is interesting because one of the great Jewish historians, military leaders, prophet and priest is a guy named Josephus, and Josephus, who, who, he actually happened to be one of the Jewish generals fighting against Rome, and he realized, actually, I shouldn't be doing this, Rome's going to win, and when he first encounters Vespasian, Vespasian according to Josephus, Josephus prophesies that Vespasian's become the emperor, and when he does, Vespasian remembers this, and later hires Josephus to write the story of the Jewish people from the time of creation, from and Abraham, Adam and Abraham, all the way down to the time when the Jews lost their temple. And this becomes a crucially invaluable resource, the writings of Josephus. And just personally, I think it's interesting that he's a little bit like Mormon in some ways. He's a writer, a historian. He lives at the end of times for his people. He's a military general, he's a bit of a prophet, a bit of a priest. So you get the Book of Mormon, Josephus, are interesting texts that help us to look back on how have different people chosen to be faithful to God or not, and what are the consequences when people choose not to be faithful to God? Thank heaven that that happened because Josephus in his, in the two big books, Antiquities of the Jews and Wars of the Jews, without him, there would be a lot of empty space in our understanding of, of how things happened and, and, and how uh, the history unfolded for these people. Well, when Vespasian returns to Rome, he leaves his son, Titus, in charge, and you have three legions of the Roman army in, in Israel, fighting against the Jews and eventually besieging Jerusalem, and finally in 70 AD, Titus overthrows the, the final group of holdouts in the temple, and they carry them away captive, and you can go to Rome, Italy today and see Titus's triumphal arch, and on the one side you can see the spoils of Titus overthrowing Jerusalem and carrying away those implements out of the temple in Jerusalem. And so if you do the math here, we're just a little over 30 years after the crucifixion of Christ, 
all of these prophecies are going to come to pass, which I, we just need to say this, if you, if you do Google searches on dating for the apostle, or for the, the writings of the New Testament, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll often see that most people in the biblical studies realm are going to date the uh, Gospels after 70 AD, and it's precisely because of these prophecies that many people in, in the scholarly world don't believe in prophecy and revelation, they don't believe that Jesus was divine, they don't believe in the miracles, and that's, that's their choice, and so they say it's impossible he could have gotten so much detail correct 30 plus years before it, it's going to happen, and so they say, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all had to be written after 70 AD, and there are other reasons for that they give for making those, those uh, predictions on their dating, but as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe that Jesus is divine, we believe in his miraculous power, and we believe in his ability to prophesy and to see and know the future very clearly and tell plainly what would happen. So we're not, we're not going to um, be held to those same dating um, limitations when trying to figure out when the New Testament was, was first written. A couple of additional historical anchors. Uh, it is interesting looking at this picture of the Arch of Titus, you can see the menorah, all the temple treasure. You got to re remember, for the Jewish people, the temple was synonymous with their state, with their government. The temple treasury was like where any government would hold all their money, so an enormous amount of wealth. So Titus did, and the Romans did several things. They took all this money and they enslaved the Jews that they captured and they forced the Jews into Rome to build the Colosseum with the wealth of the temple. So whenever you see the Colosseum in Rome, just know that was built by Jewish slaves from the wealth of the Jewish temple, possibly even the widow's two mites contributed to that. <laughs> and it's just interesting that instead of work to, for God, where you would sacrifice animals to represent God's love for us, the Romans sacrificed one another in gladiatorial combats. It's kind of sad. One final thing is, if you've ever heard of Masada, this like this fortress on top of this little mesa plateau, those were the very final holdouts from the Jewish people because um, the Jews who weren't captured in Jerusalem, some of them went down here and said, we're going to protect ourselves against the Romans, and eventually the Romans conquered up there as well. So let's, let's dive into some of these prophecies that he gives them regarding the destruction of Jerusalem. So starting in verse 5, take heed that no man deceive you. There's an implication here that there will be many who are going to try to tell you things that they're not true. I love how our prophets and apostles have taught so, cl so clearly that truth is truth. President Nielsen has made that statement multiple times, and others have said it's not an apostle's job to make up doctrine just because people want to hear it that way. They are only allowed to teach what God authorizes them and asks them to teach, and they're not going to deceive you. Verse 6 says, for many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So they're going to be false Christ. I can tell you a brief story. I'm going to get my details a little bit off, but uh, back during the Ottoman Empire a couple hundred years ago, what is now Turkey, there was a Jewish person who rose up and said, I am the Messiah, and convinced a lot of Jews who were still waiting for the Messiah to come to deliver them 
And the uh, Ottoman authorities were not super pleased with this guy. They captured him, brought him in, and they gave him a choice, uh, either convert to our religion or uh, lose your life. And it's interesting. He uh, didn't die. He converted, and he was essentially lost to history after that. But you had all these people who had been following him kind of get left out in the cold that he had been a false messiah. Now, that's an extreme example, but we have teachers sent from heaven, apostles and prophets. They teach us to follow Jesus Christ. We live in a world awash in chaos. And there's safety in knowing what the truth is by listening to the prophets. We don't have to be led astray by the whims of men. So let's just pick up a couple more of these verses. Verse 9, and many false prophets shall arrive and shall deceive arise and shall deceive many, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Did you notice the cause and effect that Jesus used there? Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Iniquity leads to a decrease of love. It, it waxes cold. If, you, if you're lacking love, increase righteousness. Increase your faith in God. Turn to him more, more completely. Give your life more fully to him. Listen to his prophets, and love will wax warmer in your life is the, is the unwritten ex, uh, implication here. I love Article of Faith 13. There's a variety of principles laid out for how we can stay grounded in truth. It says, we believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and doing good to all men. And then I'll jump to the end. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. That's a pretty beautiful invitation that really any one of us has the capacity to do. So in your life, if you find yourself confused or frustrated by competing voices, you can ask yourself, am I listening to honest people who are benevolent and good? Am I seeking to do good? Am I seeking to love other people? Do I find myself addicted to anger and frustration with others? Or am I willing to practice forgiveness to myself and to those around me? And am I seeking what truly is virtuous and lovely and turning away from those things that are not? And as fallen nature human beings, I suffer with this too, it's easier to get sucked into, it's easy to get addicted into darkness and anger and frustration and to not love people. But this invitation we have from Article of Faith 13, I believe is an antidote and also part of the way that we can help ourselves not be deceived, as Jesus said, will happen to those who don't have love. So he then describes in in verse 13 through 17 the actual uh, destruction and where – what you should do, flee, run. Um, Verse 18, for then in those days shall be great tribulation on the Jews and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, such as was not before sent upon Israel of God since the beginning of their kingdom until this time. No, nor ever shall be sent again upon Israel. Three Roman legions unleashing the might and power of Rome on this little outpost of the Roman Empire, the fifth, the twelfth, and the fifteenth legions. You, You can just imagine 
the, the terror that these people are going through. Verse 20, and except those days should be shortened, there should none of their flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, according to the covenant, those days shall be shortened. And the covenant we're talking about goes back to Genesis chapter 12, 15, 18. It's the Abrahamic covenant where God has promised Abraham posterity, prosperity, and land, and God is saying, because I've made a covenant to offer that to his children, I am not going to allow all these people to be cut off and destroyed. And interestingly, you could connect this uh, similarly to the Lamanites. They are children of Abraham, and that is one of the reasons why God did not allow the entire nation of Lamanites to die off, but he, like he's doing for everyone today, inviting them back in, reminding them, here's the covenant I've made, you all have access to it, please be loyal to me. So that's, that's kind of in the background of what's going on here. Now we go, jump to verse 21, which is a very critical point in Joseph Smith Matthew, because this is the transition. Behold, these things I have spoken unto you concerning the Jews. So I've now answered your first question that you asked, sitting here on the Mount of Olives. Now he transitions to the second question, and again. So if you just mark those two words, and again, it's, it's the turning a page after the tribulation of those days which shall come upon Jerusalem. If any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe him not. So from this time forward, we're focused now on what, what many people call the apocalypse, and we'll talk about this at the end of the year when we get to the book of Revelation, which in many English Bibles is called the apocalypse, which is not meant to be this fearful, scary word. It's meant in Greek to, to reveal, to uncover, to make clear, to show you plainly these things that are going to happen. Why? Look at verse uh, 22, for in those days there shall arise false Christs, false prophets, they're going to show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible they should deceive the very elect who are elect according to the covenant. These would be people who have entered into covenant with, with God, even many of them are going to be deceived. Why? Verse 23, Behold, I speak these things unto you for the elect's sake, and you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that ye be not troubled, for all I have told you must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Did you catch the significance here? The whole point of an apocalypse or of a revelation of an uncovering and an unveiling and making things clear isn't so that we walk around with our knees shaking together and trembling in fear and anxiety of all the bad things that are going to happen and that are happening around us. It's quite the opposite. It's that we'll calmly put our faith and our trust in God and say, yep, he told us this would happen and there it's happening, great is our God, and he's prepared us for this moment. He's given these prophecies for the elect's sake so that we don't need to be troubled. Be not troubled doesn't sound to me like a, a casual suggestion. It sounds like mm -hmm. almost a command. Don't be afraid. Be not troubled. Let me also use this brief metaphor. Imagine you were going to watch a movie or read a book that was very dramatic and without, and somebody told you in advance kind of the plot line, 
that there was going to be enormous disaster going on at some point later on in the book, and it's going to feel really stressful. But at the end, every, all the plot points get all tied up, and everything works out, and it's beautiful, and all the heroes come together, and they live happily ever after. So when you got to that point in the movie or the book, it might be kind of intense, but you're like, oh, I know how this all ends. Now, typically, I don't like to be told in advance how a story ends because I, I kind of like to experience it in the moment. Jesus actually has already revealed everything. He doesn't want us to be freaked out in the middle of the story, the middle of your life, like, oh, what's going to happen? We already know. We can just be calm. And if we'll simply follow his prophets, we really don't need to be afraid because the prophets are preparing us. They're talking about preparing the earth for the second coming. Look at the number of temples. Look at the number of missionaries. Look at the number of people who, with, with callings and with power from God, are, are doing his work to prepare the world for the second coming of the Savior. It's beautiful. We don't need to turn to social media or to false prophets or false Christs to, to get our answers as to when things are going to culminate. Just follow the prophets. Surely the Lord God will do nothing until he revealeth his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. From Amos chapter 3, verse 7. So, if you look down at verse 29, he repeats this idea, Behold, I speak for mine elect's sake. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in divers places. And we're seeing that and it's growing. It's a fun exercise to take Joseph Smith Matthew, starting in verse 21 through verse 55, and list, if you would like to go into a deeper study, list all of the prophecies and then make a note of whether they are unfulfilled, partially fulfilled, or completely fulfilled, and it's impossible to be more fulfilled at that point. What you're going to find as you go through these verses is that many of these things are underway. They're partially fulfilled and they're continuing to be fulfilled, but the end is not yet. There's still more to happen. So look at verse uh, 31. Again, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come, or the destruction of the wicked. Don't you love the fact that he doesn't just put in here the, the scary, destructive, pestilence, and natural disaster kind of prophecies, but he also throws in the fact, and, and if you put it in the context of Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives looking to the west to the city of Jerusalem there on Mount Moriah and Mount Zion with his apostles surrounding him and him saying, the gospel is going to be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Wow! If you zoom out from that mountain on that moment and picture this latter-day prophecy of what you and I today now get to be involved in, this great latter-day gathering of the house of Israel, preaching the gospel in all corners of the world, and it's only going to grow. What a privilege! These really are the best of times. Rather than focusing on the negative, let's recognize there was never a better time to live than right now. We have more power, more temples, more abilities 
that God has given us. More truth, more goodness, more opportunities. Is life hard? Yes. yes. Are there difficulties? Absolutely. In families and individuals, communities, and yet across all of human history, there's never been a more glorious time than right now. And if we can just remember that, we fought a war in heaven to get down here. And of all the humans have ever lived, we have the most tremendous opportunities. Let's embrace that with joy and alacrity and move forward with faith and goodness and, and share that love and light with people everywhere. Sure, we're aware that there's going to be some chaos, but what good story doesn't have a bit of conflict or, or uh, disruption to the, the plot line where people have to exercise faith and actually demonstrate the heroic capabilities they receive from God? That's just that's just good, uh, a good story. And we're part it. of a good story. I love it. You, you would think that Charles Dickens in A Tale of Two Cities was speaking of us today. These were the best of times, these were the worst of times, and you get to decide which of those two elements of that couplet you focus on because it's very easy to get discouraged and filled with fear and anxiety and depression with, with all the, the worst of times elements that we see going on. But when you stick with God's prophets, when you put your faith in Christ, that he's in charge and he's not up in the heavens looking at these wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and disease and natural disasters, he's, he's not wringing his hands together saying, oh, oh no, what, what are we going to do? It, he, he told us these were going to happen. It's, like it's a, part of the plan. It's like a director of a movie. When the director of the movie is actually working through like the climactic scenes, the, the director's not worried like, I wonder if this whole movie is just going to flop. He understands where everything's going and it's going to be a glorious end and everyone's going to walk out of the theater saying, that was an amazing story. And we will get to a point in the future where we'll say, that was so amazing what God, the director of our lives, has done. And that was the most amazing story to participate in. And I really wish I hadn't been so sucked into all the drama that I'd actually enjoyed and experienced the beauty and goodness that God had provided. So let's jump down to verse 37. Whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. Can I just say it? That if you spend more time, President Nelson uh, taught us this, this idea, that if you spend more time reading social media and, the, and tuning your ears and your mind and your heart to the voices of the world than you do to treasuring up the words of Christ in scriptures and the words of his living prophets and from truly inspired sources, don't be shocked when you, when you find that your faith is starting to struggle and suffer and wane. Don't be shocked when you start to be filled with more fear. I, I love this idea. If you treasure up his word, you will not be deceived, for the Son of Man shall come, and he shall send his angels before him with the sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together the remainder of his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. You and I want to be a part of that army of, of angels working collaboratively on both sides of the veil to go out and, and share this message with the world, because it is a glorious message in the face of great adversity. And building upon the idea of treasuring the good things that God has provided, um, I, I remember talking to some students at one point and saying, would you purposely consume really unhealthy food or illicit drugs, like drugs that are really dangerous? And they're like, well, no. And I said, well, 
If that's the case, if you wouldn't ingest that into your body, why would you ever choose to ingest into your brain illicit information, destructive information, or information that's going to tear you away from God and truth and love and beauty? And so this is part of what God's asking, inviting us. Um, there's never been more opportunity than today for access to information. But why not just choose the good stuff and just reject the overwhelming onslaught of bad that can addict us to anger and frustration and ignorance and fear. When we have so much light, these treasures that God has provided, let us not find ourselves distracted by darkness, but instead be embraced by the light. So now we jump down to verse 38 where he gives a little two-verse parable. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When its branches are yet tender and it begins to put forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh at hand. So he's saying you, you don't have to wonder when summer's coming. Just look at the fig trees. You, you can see when the signs are leading you to know, oh, summer is really close. So likewise, mine elect, when they shall see all these things, everything that we've covered from verse 21 up through verse 37, all these prophecies, he says, that's like the fig tree. This is a parable. You can see, oh, yep, we're getting closer and closer to the coming of Christ, and they shall know that he is near even at the doors. And then he gives a little caution, verse 40, but of that day and hour no one knoweth, no, not the angels of God in heaven, but my Father only. Recognize that he didn't even include himself in the list there. I don't know if that means that he didn't know at that moment on the Mount of Olives when his second coming was going to be, and that wouldn't bother me if he didn't know that at that point because it wasn't necessary. He had to finish his mortal ministry and to complete his first coming before his focus fully would shift to then preparing the world for his second coming. But you'll notice in section 49 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 7, in that great uh, prophecy given to the shaking Quakers, that in verse 7 he doesn't include himself in the list of people who don't know the day or the hour of his coming. So uh, verse 41 now goes on to say, but as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be also at the coming of the Son of Man. So he's describing here the wickedness and the struggles at the time of Noah are going to come back right before his second coming, for it shall be with them as it was in the days which were before the flood. So what do we do? Here we sit in the latter days with all of these all of these signs of the fig tree putting forth her leaves and, and some of those initial buds of fruit, and we say the summer is nigh at hand, we listen to our prophets more than we listen to the voices of the world and all of the experts of, of the blogosphere, and we hear more talk of preparing the world for the second coming of the Savior, so what do we now do? What is, our, what is our job? Verse 46, and what I say unto one, I say unto all men. Watch, therefore, for you know not at what hour your Lord doth come. I love this because if we're not careful, we will spend so much time, 
so much energy and effort focusing on an event, the coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming, the, this grand and glorious uh, event of, at that day, and if we're not careful, we're going to miss the entire process of becoming more like him and preparing to receive him into our own life to the point where we miss out on the joyous journey of discipleship because we're looking for some event of salvation and we miss it because our focus has been on the wrong things. It doesn't mean that we're not supposed to look forward to his day, we do, but we look forward to his day by walking the covenant path, by becoming more firm in our three identities that President Nilsson asked us to focus on, child of God, child of the covenant, disciple of Christ. If we focus on those three things, then whether it happens today or tomorrow, the second coming, we're going to be ready. But if we put all of our eggs in the event basket, trying to calculate when it's going to be and looking at all the prophecies and line them up, and we're not loving God and loving our neighbor in the process, well then when he does come, it won't be a glorious event for us. I'll use a, a metaphor. So I work with a lot of college students, and many of them appropriately are very excited about graduating. That's a big event. But some of them, unfortunately, get stuck in, in jumping through the hoops and not really embracing the full experience of what a college education is about, like the learning. And they get to this event, and they graduate, and ta-da, it's like, wait a second, life goes on, and I didn't really fully prepare myself because I was just kind of going through the motions trying to rush to get to this event thinking this suddenly everything's done, I'm saved. There's an entire life after that. And so is life hard? Yes. But let's work again with joy and love and alacrity and remember we know this event's going to happen and even better yet, we know there's a bunch of awesome events afterwards of enormous glory and joy and we can be learning for the entire process. That is one of the key purposes of the plan of salvation and why the atonement of Jesus Christ is so freely available. It's to underscore all of our learning to become more like him. It's a journey of discovery, and how many prophets have told us, President Monson really emphasized this phrase, find joy in the journey um, instead of fear and trepidation. So now we conclude, verse 48, therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. And then Jesus asks a, a series of questions here in verse 49. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Brothers and sisters, that is the key, that is the, the foundation point for three parables that we're going to cover in the second episode for this week, parables given for the elect's sake of how do I prepare to meet the Lord, whether it be at his second coming or whether it be in death. What can I do to be a faithful and wise servant? He will come again. The scriptures are very clear about that. 
Our prophecies are very clear about that. And the question is, will I be ready when he comes? And it's our prayer that we'll all more faithfully engage in our covenant path progression and find joy in that journey. So this, this entire chapter is, is filled with beautiful principles for how to prepare for the Lord's second coming, and it comes by way of three parables. And remember, Joseph Smith's key to unlocking meaning and being able to better interpret parables is you look at the question, you look at the setting, you look at what was on people's mind when Jesus shared the parable, and in this case, the parables. So we mentioned in part one that if you go back to Matthew 24, verse 45, that's where Jesus himself asks the question that he is then going to answer using those three parables. Here are the questions. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? So if you if you unpack some of those words there in verse 45 for a moment, the implication is that there would be not faithful and not wise or foolish servants. So we're not talking about enemies of the Lord. We're not talking about outsiders. We're talking about servants of the Lord, people who are in a covenant connection with him who he has given directions to, he's given his, his commandments to, and they're not staying loyal, they're, they're being foolish, they're being unwise, and so you get this contrast in all three of these parables where you're going to see a good example and a bad example juxtaposed right next to each other because then it highlights the difference between foolish and wise, between a faithful and an unfaithful or disloyal servant as we, as we um, strive to then find ourselves on that faithful and loyal side of the line. It's a powerful teaching technique. There's two important things Jesus is doing. Actually, I throw in a third. Asking good questions, which get prompt questing or thinking. Teaching with case studies or using narratives or stories to illustrate a point, and then in those narratives using uh, contrasts. So, if you are in a teaching moment or in a teaching situation, you might look at what Jesus did. Ask good questions of your audience. Use many case studies that are relevant to the people, and in those case studies, those little narratives, put up two clear contrasts so people can see good example, bad example, and then walk away and see how those principles apply to their own lives. So let's jump in. Let's, let's see how Jesus answers his own question of who is faithful and wise in preparing for his second coming. Look at verse 1. We're going to pick up the Joseph Smith translation down in the footnote. And then, at that day before the Son of Man comes. So, he's giving an implication here from the Joseph Smith translation for us to be able to say, whoa, he's talking about our day, not just speaking to the apostles in their day, which the beauty of Scripture is you can liken all Scripture to yourself at any time. The key for us is to not keep these stories locked up in their historical setting 2,000 years ago, and Joseph Smith adding that little line there at the beginning of verse 1 
unlocks with his prophetic key the the power of these parables to bring them forward to us and say, okay, this is this is just as relevant in the 21st century as we're getting closer and closer to the second coming of the Savior as it was back then, more so. So, then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. So, let's make some a couple of things uh, more clear here. These are ten virgins. These are pure people. These, once again, are covenant members of the church in this context. These aren't outsiders. And so they take their lamps and they go. And notice they're not called foolish and wise in verse 1, because no. they got their lamps. They've all got lamps, and we're, gonna, we're going to go to meet the bridegroom. Now, based on this parable and other writings from the first century, it seems that what you have is this progression – let me get the spelling right – you have the groom's house, you have the bride's house, and you have her guests with her, and you have his wedding uh, family and guests with him at his house, and it seems that what happens is <clears throat> the groom at any time once the sun sets, they, they usually do these, these uh, weddings in the evening or in the night, once the sun sets, he will take his party and come to the bride's house, pick up her group, and then they will come back to the groom's house where the, their marriage uh, ceremony will be performed. They're not going to the synagogue, they're not marching down an aisle, they're not coming to an altar. It's a very different uh, wedding uh, ceremony than what you might be familiar with in all of our settings today in, in the Christian world. And so people who are going to be invited to come that aren't in the immediate circle of friends and family for either the groom or the bride, they're out here along the way waiting to be uh, picked up in this wedding processional to then go to the groom's house. Problem is, you have no idea when the groom is going to go to pick up the, the party over at the bride's house to begin this ceremony. So you can see the need for these ten virgins to have their lamps out here. It's middle of the night, and it says, verse 2, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Hmm, what is the distinguishing feature? It tells you in verse 3 and 4, they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. So they have the mechanism for making light, but they don't have the fuel for producing that light within that mechanism. You could compare this to a variety of things, and since it's a parable and it's in symbolic form, it's beautiful to look at various layers of, of potential application and likening to what could the oil represent. We've had many talks given in General Conference about this parable, and they're beautiful. All of the different angles and approaches that people have given us to be able to interpret this parable, it's wonderful. Um, some have said the lamp is like the, your, your testimony, but the oil 
is deep conversion. Some would say, well, the lamp is like getting baptized, but the oil is your testimony and conversion or your commitment to the Lord. Some would say the lamp is all of the external things we do in the church, but the oil are the internal personal religious practices, the the study of the scriptures, the worship in the temple, the personal prayers, living the gospel, keeping the commandments that adds that, that light to all of these outward things that we do as members of the church. Again, the, the beauty of this is for you to consider prayerfully with the help of the Lord, what is the oil for me versus what is the lamp in, in my life and how can I distinguish? Because all of them have a lamp but only half of them have the oil, and now you, you, can, you can keep exploring different levels of application for your own life as to what that oil might represent. Verse 4 says, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. I love this. The, the, the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So verse 5 says, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Now, Jesus doesn't pause here and call them out for falling asleep. At this point, it could be 9, 10 o'clock at night. If you've already had a long work day, you're going to be kind of tired waiting. And then what happens? And at midnight, there was a cry made, behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. As a reminder, weddings were some of the most joyous, anticipated moments in anyone's life and actually in the community life. So this is what everybody wants. It's the big moment of joy and satisfaction. And what happens? Verse 7, then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. So this is the moment of truth where everyone has arrived. They've all all been waiting. These are the good people who understand we know the bridegroom is going to come. They're not like everybody else who's not even joining or attempting to join the wedding party. They've showed up. They've come with their lamps, and almost everything's ready, except for five of them don't have enough oil. And as Tyler's pointing out, we have to ask ourselves in our lives, what lack I yet to be prepared for being with Jesus? And this is what Jesus is trying to point out for all of us. So when I was younger, this this parable, um, it bothered me a little because I thought, man, we're, we're taught to share in the gospel. Why, why are they being so selfish? Why are these wise virgins being called wise when they're being very selfish? And it's not until you, you analyze what Jesus is trying to teach. This Remember, this isn't just a fancy story about first-century Jewish wedding practices. This is about helping his disciples learn how to prepare for his second coming, and you don't know when that second coming is going to be. And I think it's beautiful that in this parable, the bridegroom came at midnight the middle of the night, the darkest, it's the time when the sun is the farthest away from you, when it seems like it's the the darkest hour of the 24-hour cycle, 
that's when he came, when things were the darkest of all, and it's that idea of at that moment when he does come unexpectedly, because you're not sure exactly when that's going to be, it's too late to then say, oh, now I'm going to start doing all of those personal uh, religious practices that prepare me for the coming of the Lord. So the wise virgins could no more give their oil to the foolish virgins any more than a parent can live the gospel of Jesus Christ for a child, any more than Taylor could go skiing for me and then give me that experience because maybe I didn't get to go, or any more than I could eat a Thanksgiving dinner for you. There are some things you can't do for other people. They have to experience them for themselves. They have to do it, and living the gospel and being covenantally faithful to Christ is something that cannot be done by anybody but you for your oil and your lamp. And so they couldn't give oil, but they could give wise counsel, which was go buy for yourselves, go work for this. But you'll notice the time is a little late. When Jesus is coming for his second coming, it's probably not the, the, the ideal time to say, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm going to start working on my testimony and my conversion to Christ, and I'm going to start working on keeping the commandments. Um, you see that in the rest of this parable. I, we see this sometimes with students. I confess when I was a student, I did this a few times, where you have a whole long time to be involved in a class, and then the, the final exam time is looming, and some people try to cram and get all the learning done a day or two before the final exam, and it turns out the human brain takes time to really acquire a knowledge and wisdom, and they did not, these virgins did not give themselves enough time to be well prepared. What was the, uh, the lesson Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf shared in a talk? When is the best time to plant a tree? Like 20 years ago? Yeah. And when's the second best time to plant a tree? Today. So if you didn't plant it 20 years ago, the best time to plant it is start today. So for me, one of the take-homes from this parable is to say, even if you personally are analyzing your own uh, testimony, your own discipleship, your own level of conversion, the reality is you are not a victim of your past self. If your past self didn't do a great job of putting oil in the lamp, you can start today. In fact, you can start right now with a prayer in your heart to say, Heavenly Father, I want to be better prepared for meeting the Savior, and I want more oil in the lamp of my life. What could I do today to put more drops of oil or to allow thee to put more drops of oil into my lamp and into my vessel? Uh, those are the kinds of prayers that I think God answers quickly and completely 100% of the time when you are putting your agency on the altar of the Lord saying, I'll do whatever you want me to do, what can I do to deepen my conversion, to deepen my testimony, to deepen my commitment to thee, and to be more fit for the kingdom, more used would I be, more blessed and holy, more Savior like thee? He will answer that prayer, 
and it, it gives us hope. Now we come back to the parable, verse 10, and while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him. I love those, those two phrases, they that were ready went in with him. It's that invitation, not that salvation is all about being in a location. It's not just about being with Jesus in heaven. It's feeling like you belong with him. It's feeling a connection with him. It's building this relationship with with God through multiple choices that are made over long periods of time where you grow, you learn, you repent, you allow him to forgive you and and, uh, polish you in this process to the point to when he actually comes. I love the phrasing in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verse 1 through 2, when the Savior shall appear, we shall see him as he is. We shall see that he is a man like ourselves, and that same sociality which exists among us here will exist among us there, only it will be coupled with eternal glory, which glory we do not now enjoy. I love this idea of being able to see him as he is because we recognize him. We've been working towards building that connection with him and with our Heavenly Father for uh, a process, over a process of time. And so then they go in with him to the marriage and then five of the saddest words in the entire New Testament, in my view, are the ending part of verse 10. And the door was shut. The door was shut. The time of preparation is closed. Um, Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. The Joseph Smith translation reverses that and says, You know me not. You haven't you haven't trusted me and uh, you haven't gone through that process of trying to become like me and getting to know me, and so now you want salvation at the end without accepting of my grace all along the way to work on who you were becoming. This is a very sobering, sobering conclusion of this parable. Look how he finishes it. Uh, verse 13, watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Can you see the warning? The warning to not eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and it shall be well with us. Just um, go ahead and, and join the church, but then do whatever you want to do, and then when things look like, oh, the end is very near, okay, now I will engage in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will connect with him through my covenants you knew me not, Um, watch therefore, for we don't know the hour. And the best time to prepare for the second coming of the Lord was 20 years ago, but the next best time is today. 
and I would add tomorrow and the next day and every day thereafter for the rest of our life. It, you'll notice the, the wise virgins, they weren't claiming perfection, they were prepared, they weren't perfect, and that's what he's asking us to do. So to sum up this parable, you'll notice before we had the groom's house here and the bride's house here, what if you looked at the groom's house as heaven and the bride's house as earth, and we don't know when the bridegroom is going to come to take his bride and go for the ultimate marriage and feast, this millennial reign following his second coming. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful um, shifting from just an earthly story to an eternal lesson through this parable, as we're going to see with, with the remaining two parables in this, in this chapter, they're all teaching the same principle. How do you be a faithful and a wise servant on earth so that you're ready when Christ comes again to, uh, to take us? Okay, so what's the question that Jesus is answering when he shares three parables? Again, back in Matthew 24, verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? So we've seen one parable, now we're going to see another short case study. And this is set up with a man who is a, who owns a lot of property and he entrusts it to various servants and he's going to go on a journey and he calls upon them to have an increase. So he gives them a certain set of resources when he returns he expects those resources to have been multiplied or magnified or increased. So in verse 14 it says, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. So again, it's a parable. It's symbolic. You can find all kinds of, of applications and likenings of this parable on multiple levels and layers. But if you look at it from the Savior's perspective, he's on the earth with his apostles, he then goes to a far country. It's as if he's leaving earth and going to heaven with the promise, I'm going to come again, and when I come again, I want to see an increase in, in what I have given you. And remember, these are all servants. Not enemies. These aren't enemies. <laughs> They're not outsiders. These are insiders. They're in his household. They're in a covenant uh, agreement with him. And they know him, which will come out later in the parable. They know exactly the kind of character that their master is. But one of them doesn't really know him, as we're going to find. Two of them really do, yeah. and the other's an outlier. Foolish and wise. We're, we're going to see this contrast. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. Now, right out of the gate, this, this starting part of the parable, it would be easy for us in our world today to look at that and say, Jesus, this, this story, it, it's not fair, because you see, we live in a world that seems to want to demand equality and sameness. And so we would say, well, man, you've disadvantaged this guy and this guy 
compared to that guy. Of course he's going to succeed. Of course he's going to be benefited. But these two, wow, I mean, we're not even half of what you gave them. It's not fair. That's a phrase you'll hear a lot in our world. It's not fair. I love the fact that uh, Isaiah 55 says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, because he says, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I see things from a different perspective than you looking horizontally. So yes, from an earthly perspective, there's no question, that doesn't look fair. It doesn't look right. It doesn't look equal because it's not the same. But look at the rationale Jesus gives in in, uh, the second half of verse 15. To every man according to his several ability and straightway took his journey. Based on Jesus' statement, would it have been merciful, would it have been gracious and kind for him to give to this guy or this guy five talents or four talents? Jesus is the one telling the story, and he's the one giving the rationale for the different amounts, and he's saying according to their individual capacities, it doesn't seem like it would be very merciful or kind to give this man four talents or three talents because you might be setting him up for failure. And you look at another principle of the gospel from Doctrine and Covenants section 82 verse 3, where much is given, much is required, and he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. It's fascinating to me that, yes, he's giving more talents to this guy than to the others, but that means more is required of him according to his individual capacity. So remember, keep keep coming back to this context, we're trying to prepare for the second coming of the Lord. And many of you watching this, the Lord has given much into our hands, given us great opportunities, many talents, not just gifts and abilities kinds of talents. This is a placeholder. Talents is a weight and measure for money, and so that's a symbol that then can represent all kinds of things. And the idea being, don't get complacent and say, well, at least I'm doing a lot better than all of those people out there, so I can just kind of coast. No, we have to figure out what God has given us and magnify and multiply those things because God doesn't grade you on the curve. He won't bring you to the judgment bar and put a whole bunch of people next to you and see how you measure up with those people, be they faithful or wise. He's going to judge you based on what you received, and I love in this parable how the three men are judged independent of each other. He doesn't bring them in as a group and and say, but, but you didn't do as well as he did. He doesn't do that, and that's comforting to me moving forward. Yes, let's read the next couple of verses. Then he that received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them another five talents. And likewise, he that received two, he also gained other two. But he that received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Now, some interesting thoughts here. So these two actually go out and take a risk. What they're doing is risky. It's possible that as they trade, things don't work out and they lose the money. Now, in this, in this parable, in this case study, they didn't. They actually increased. This guy didn't take a risk. What did he do? He actually preserved the wealth that was received. He took no risks. 
simply made sure that the value of what he received was not eroded at all. Kind of interesting. It is interesting because if you look at what was the, what seems to be the motivator here versus the motivator here, why did he bury his talent? Was it in faith? It seems that he's making his decisions based on fear. These two seem to be moving forward with a measure of faith that good things are going to happen. And good things cannot happen unless you take action. If you could write the words up, to try, to risk, to attempt. So I teach classes in entrepreneurship, and the fundamental meaning of the word entrepreneurship means to risk, to try, to attempt. I want you to think about the plan of salvation that we all fought to come down here. We are now on this earth. God has preserved and protected our agency that we can try things and attempt living the gospel. We take risks. Sometimes we make mistakes and we get hurt in the process of trying to be like Jesus. It is impossible to experience faith without risking something, without trying something, without attempting something. Absolutely. Now, let's come to the day of reckoning. Not losing sight on the reason Jesus is telling this parable. It's not it's not a story of just faith and fear and trying things and, and investing. This is a parable to help disciples of Jesus Christ, servants of the Lord, to better prepare for his second coming. Well, look at verse 19. After a long time the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, Thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. Now, let's pause here for a minute. When this five-talent guy comes in for his moment of reckoning with the Lord, it seems very clear in his mind and the way that Jesus is telling this story, it seems that this man is assuming that these are not the man's talents. They are the Lord's, these ten talents. The Lord gave him five, he's multiplied them, and he's not staking claim. He's not saying, okay, here are your five talents back, I'm going to keep these five because I did this work, I now earned them, I deserve them. The, the implication is he's delivering the ten talents to his, to his Lord. And I love, I love this next verse. His Lord said unto him, well done thou good and faithful servant. Do you remember those words? Good and faithful servant, a wise and faithful servant. It ties in here from his question. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler. There's a difference between a servant and a ruler. You have proven yourself as a servant that is faithful and good and we would add wise, and because you did that as a servant, I am now going to give you uh, the, the necessary things in order to be a ruler, not a servant, over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. We find out from the very end of the parable that those ten talents were not greedily taken by the Lord saying, oh, good, I've, look how much richer I am now. 
God doesn't take things from you in your discipleship. He gives things to you as you sacrifice in your discipleship. The man walks away with the ten talents. I can picture I can picture being a, a time-traveling uh, reporter going up to this man and saying, hey, um, I- I'm new here, can, what can you tell me? I- I'm doing a- an article on your master there. How would you describe him? What are some words you would use to describe the master? What, what do you think the, the five-talent servant would say? Mercy, love, generosity, kindness, goodness. He, he would be, I can picture this man with a heart that is bursting with gratitude and love for the Lord. I think he would say, I, I would do anything he asked me to do. I, I did not deserve this. I didn't think that I was doing all of this for me. I was doing it for him, and now he's given it all back in abundance to me and made me a ruler over all these things when I'm not even worthy to be called his servant, but he's, he's elevated me. Now, that was the first guy, and many people would say, well, of course that's what's going to happen because look how privileged he was. I love the fact that in Matthew's account, he throws in this middle ground servant, the one with two talents. Let's look at his story. Verse 22, he also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliveredst unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. Same thing. Here they are. I've got four talents. Don't you love the fact that the next verse doesn't say, and the Lord said unto the servant, really? You've only got four talents? Well, the, the man before you, the other servant before you, he brought me ten talents, and you've only got four. I love the fact that God doesn't even mention anybody else. He's looking at this one man, and what does he say to the two-talent guy? Well done, good and faithful servant. I need to pause right here, because if you look closely at verse 21 and 23, the entirety of the verse, the, the dialogue that comes back from the Lord to the two servants is identical with the exception of one word. In verse 21, it added the word thou. But look carefully at the word thou in verse 21. It's italicized. And if you look at all of our Greek uh, texts, all of the different versions of manuscript families of this story in Greek, you'll notice that there's no thou in the Greek text. The verse 21 and 23 are identical in the Greek. I'm not sure why the King James translators added the word thou, because this story is way more powerful if you just leave it the way it was in the Greek. It's identical. The the two-talent guy hears the exact same thing, and now he walks out, and if we were to interview him, I think we would hear identical Uh, adjectives to describe how he feels about the Lord as the five-talent guy. But you'll notice that we've now come down to verse 23, the end of verse 23, which shifts us into the third man, verse 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, 
I knew thee that thou art an hard man. Let's pause right here for a minute. Let's reverse our, our little interview scenario. What if we were to pull aside the one talent guy as he's walking in holding the the roughly 75 pounds, give or take, who knows how much the, the actual uh, weight of this uh, money was as he's bringing it back to the Lord. If we were to interview him and say, uh, tell, me, tell me about your master. What kind of a person is he? What are some words that the one talent guy might say? I knew thee that thou art a hard man reaping where thou hast not where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. What did you basically just say about the master? He's grasping, selfish, and actually steals from other people. You're taking things that you really don't deserve, that they're not yours, reaping where you haven't strawed. You're a harsh, hard man. You're scary. Look at verse 25, and I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo there, thou hast that is thine. Can you picture the body language? Can you picture the facial expressions as Jesus is telling this parable of what this man might look like if if we were to make a movie of this? As he puts the talent down and he's cowering, he, he doesn't dare look at the Lord because the Lord is so mean and he's so harsh and hard. And now let's pause here for a minute. What if the five and the two talent guy are standing off to the side in the wings watching this? What would their reaction be as they hear this one talent man speaking to the Lord in this way? I can picture them looking at each other thinking, who is he talking about? This is so foreign. These words, they they do not – did you see what the Lord gave us? Did you see what he's done? And they would be shocked that this man was judging the Lord, the master, so harshly. It actually makes me think about Lehi. So when Lehi leaves Jerusalem, he has four sons. Two end up being faithful and righteous and two not. Who do we blame? I'm not trying to actually assign blame, but you have one father and two outcomes. I sometimes actually see this as a teacher where I get students providing comments at the end of the semester, and literally one comment will say, this is the best teacher I've ever experienced, and the very next comment will say, this is the worst teacher I've ever experienced. And I think, well, I think I'm still the same person. And this gets back to this parable is partly about the qualities and characteristics of who God is, who our Lord is. It's also about who we are and who we're choosing to narrate who Jesus is. Are we willing to truly see Jesus as he is, or are we going to create a false story and live in that false story and then create that outcome because we predicted it, we predetermined it because we chose to see things in a negative light? It's amazing that idea that Jesus teaches that with whatsoever judgment ye judge, therewith also shall ye be judged. It's that concept of judge righteously, lest ye be judged unrighteously. If you look at the way these first two judged the Lord, they judged him as a God of mercy and power and and kindness. Um, All of these wonderful 
rewarding kinds of things, and what did they get? They found a master who fit how they judged him. How did this guy judge the Lord? Harsh, hard, angry. Well, what did he experience? Look at verse 26, his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury, with interest, with increase. So now, he says in verse 28, take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And at that point, what's our one talent guy saying? He's saying, see, I told you he's, he's mean, he's angry, he's vengeful. And the five and the two talent guy are saying, oh, if only you knew the Lord the way we know him. Let's not lose focus here. This is a parable, number two, about how to prepare for the second coming of the Lord, and it's about how to be a wise and, and good servant of the Lord. So now the question you might be able to wrestle with is, what are the symbolic applications for the talents that the Lord has given me? We're no longer talking about the five, two, and the one guy from 2,000 years ago in Jesus' story. We're now talking about you and me. What might those talents represent? For some, it's, it could be money. For some, it could be the way we use the word talents, gifts, and abilities. For some, it could be children. For some, it could be intelligence and, and capacities to, to learn and to teach and to grow in, in our intellect. For others, it could be health. For others, it could be uh, job opportunities. For others, it could be uh, church callings. And for some of you, it could be a combination of all of that. The point is, to be a faithful and wise servant implies we have to give those things that God has given us in faith and, and sacrifice and serve and try to multiply those, those various talents that God has given us so that when he comes again, we're not saying, oh, I, I kind of wasted my time on other pursuits rather than focusing on what I had received from thee, and at that point, if I haven't focused on those, those things are taken away from me and given to others, versus the five and the two talent guy who have invested their whole life in faith to serve the Lord, to return to him that which he has given to them, only for them to find out that he really is more merciful, more gracious, and more loving and kind than even we thought possible at the outset. I, I've have thought a lot about this one servant who actually did not lose his talent. So nobody wants to lose anything, so he actually preserved and protected what he'd been given. 
He just didn't grow it. And notice these words of what Jesus says. Thou wicked and slothful servant. What's interesting, the ones who are wise and faithful are those who took the risk, went out and tried to do things. I bet they experienced a little bit of failure along the way. Have you ever, have you, as you've tried something, have you ever experienced any amount of failure or fear along the way? My guess is that all of us have. And what God is looking for ultimately is that we are a profitable servant. The word profit is interesting. It comes from a Latin word meaning to make or do, and this is to like be pressing forward. So the word profit means to press forward by doing things. We came to this earth to do, not to just sit around and just wait for the end and hope God will save us. We do have to make the effort to attempt to live lives of good faithfulness. And in the process, we will be challenged. We will find times that our faith will be challenged and that it will take effort to multiply our talents. But by so doing, we become profitable servants, not simply servants that preserve the resources and wealth, but we've increased them. And then what will we experience? That God, who is the greatest prophet of all, will increase far beyond our imagination, worlds without number. So now let's jump into his third parable. If you pick it up in verse 31, it says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory. Can I just interject here that he didn't use the word if? He didn't say if the Son of Man comes in his glory. He said when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Brothers and sisters, there are a lot of uncertainties in our world but there are some things that are absolutely certain and true, and one of those truths is God lives, Jesus is the Christ, and he will return to the earth again someday. And when he comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. So you can picture this, this moment of reckoning, this moment of judgment. We've seen it in two other stories already one with the coming of a bridegroom in a marriage metaphor, another in a Lord making account with his servants in a financial setting. Now we get a pastoral setting. Are you noticing how Jesus – he, he could have finished with just one parable, but he's giving us three parables because our preparation for his second coming is such a big deal. Whether we're alive when he comes or whether we die before the second coming and we experience coming into his presence uh, at death or, or after death, the principles are the exact same of how do we prepare to meet the Lord. Look at verse uh, 32. Before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And so he's going to set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he gives this long list of things that the sheep on his right hand did. 
I was unhungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And here are these sheep, these righteous people on his right-hand side saying, uh, I, I don't get it. I, I never saw you in any of those conditions. I never did any of what you just described. And then his amazing answer in verse 40, and the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. I love that verse. I love this parable. I love this concept with the sheep that sometimes I think we get this idea, this this image in our mind that if I'm going to prepare for the second coming, I have to do something big and grand and glorious to the Lord to serve him. That's that's not how I see him speaking to, to these people back then. I see him saying, if you want to really prepare for my coming, look around. You have people who are, what are the classifications here? Hungry, thirsty, strangers, naked, sick, imprisoned, you don't have to look very far to find people in one of those or a combination of those six categories and help meet those needs, and as you do so, you're actually serving me. And I love how God is essentially saying, love God by loving your neighbor. That's how you be prepared. And I also point out that these actions here, they're not going to show up on headlines. They're not going to show up in the news. They're not going to show up on billboards. They're not going to be the talk of the town. These are the quiet acts of love, kindness, mercy, forgiveness, and service that you give to people on a regular basis. And we don't do it for the limelight. We do it because it's right. It's a way of increasing love. We are multiplying our talents, and we feel more of God's love when we do it. This reminds me of something that uh, Camilla Kimball, wife of President Spencer W. Kimball, said many years ago, never suppress a generous thought. The Lord will whisper and give you little nudges in, in small directions to meet these needs uh, that are all around us, and it's, it's a beautiful thing when you don't suppress those but you act on them as out of place as it may seem, as unnecessary, and why would they need me to do that if we just act on those? That's what the sheep did. And I also love the fact that the Lord, through his church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, models this uh, parable as well as anything I know. Every calling in this church is an invitation to do exactly what is described in verse 35 and 36. Every parent, every sibling, every family relationship is an opportunity to do those things in verse 35 and 36. And in the process, it's this this journey of becoming a wise and faithful servant unto God. The Lord lives, and he will come again, and he's given us a handbook for how to be ready for that day when we get to meet him.
and what a blessing it is to have this playbook uh, in our hands today. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. Thank you.